Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we discuss RPG ideas, compare rules, establish sacred cows, fight about what's best, kill the cows, and generally geek out over our favorite games. I'm Brandis Stoddard. And I'm Sam Dillon, and in this episode, we are discussing skill systems in D&D through the editions. So, Brandis. Sam. Do you like skills? Uh, I like I like skills, and I cannot lie. <laughs> Do you like big skills? Uh, actually, no. No, that's going to come up, and I, I don't. And we'll we'll talk about why. Okay, so let's define what we mean by skill systems. You know, Dungeons and Dragons is a class-based game. That's that's how it's referred to, uh, sort of in the industry, because most of the things that occur happen because you have a class and you level. So it's a class and level-based system, and when you level, your class gives you more abilities, and your level that you level up to might give you more abilities depending on which edition you're playing. So as part of that package in some of the editions, there was the capability or the ability or the possible abilities, depending on the edition, to get some increase in some type of skill that was secondary to the basics of hitting things with your sword or casting a spell. Would you say that's fair... It is all those kinds of actions you might undertake that aren't specifically casting the spell or attacking with a weapon or avoiding a spell, I guess. It's as distinct from saving throws, which we've already covered. Right. Let me give you the quick lowdown on the additions of the game before there was really a skill system. Okay. So if we go back to original D&D, we're talking, you know, 1974, 1977, that sort of thing. Um, The first three books in the original box set, uh, Men and Magic, Monsters and Treasure, and Underworld and Wilderness, did not have any kind of skill systems whatsoever. And even in those three books, there weren't even thieves. So there there weren't even thieves skills. Um, the best you could do was get to a high enough uh, level that you were able to have a keep or castle <laughs> that you, uh, you know, a stronghold, in other words, that you were the sort of uh, boss of or the lord or the baron or whatever your title you wanted. You could actually hire specialists who could come and work in your keep and they would have specific skill sets that they uh, that they had. But those were not PCs, they were all NPCs. So there was really no skill system to to talk about. Um, And then the Greyhawk supplement came out in 1975, and that introduced thieves into the game. And thieves had uh, thieves skills, like, you know, pick locks and remove traps and listen at doors and move stealthily and uh, something they call stake silently from behind, which is really just backstab. Uh, But the thing is that that's not really a skill system. Those aren't even referred to as skills. They're abilities because they are connected directly to the class. So I figure we're not not really talking about those per se, at least not the way they were implemented in this this edition. So I do think that we have to say a few words about their their resolution mechanic at least because because we're going to be contrasting them later with uh, with other editions where they do exist in more tension with 
a, a skill system that everyone can use. Okay, so so let me let me go into a little more nitty gritty then, uh, since you're making a good point here. So f- here are the skills or the abilities, right? Uh, pick locks and open doors, uh, detecting and removing traps, listening at doors, uh, stealthy movement, picking pockets, hiding in shadows, staking silently from behind, and climbing a nearly sheer surface. Uh, and then also at third level, that's that's what you get at first level if you're a thief. And all of those, except for listening at doors, are based on a percentage roll. So you roll a D100, and usually the, the percentages for first level characters start out at like between 10 and 20%. So some of them are 10, some are 15, some are 20. And so that's not a very high percentage of succeeding at that task. Uh, no. um, at third level, they also get read languages. So they can read and decipher any sort of script other than magical ones, because at 10th level, then they can actually understand magical writing. So they technically can read arcane scrolls, although they cannot read divine ones. Now, what's really interesting about the skill set is it did something uh, that was tricky with the demihumans, the dwarves, the elves, the half-elves, halflings. In, if you're a different class and you're a dwarf, elf, half-elf, or halfling, you actually have a level limit to what you can do and how how much you can progress. But uh, if you're a thief, uh, your level limit it ha- has no limit to its advancement. So you can actually keep improving your thief skills uh, even as your other abilities stop improving and the other things that you can do stop improving, which is kind of an interesting thing. Uh, and, and really, I think that was a... a a specific way to make it more enticing for one of those demi-human races to play a thief character. So, I was so, uh, I was not yet a uh, gleam in my father's eye uh, when <laughs> uh, this was the current edition. Yes. So, I I have read uh, OSR bloggers who swear blind that the introduction of the thief class was the beginning of the end for the uh, perfect design of OD&D. And uh, moreover, that before that skill system came in, uh, everything was perfect because the player just told the GM what they wanted to do, and the GM had it happen or not according to their personal inclinations. Uh, is that how it tended to play for non-combat actions, or how how did people actually handle that at the table for really real? That's that's exactly so. Um, so technically speaking, that you know this this system also suggested having so the DM was a referee still. That's what they were called, and right. the and the players uh, were the were the players. But then uh, um, it suggested that you nominate one of them to be the caller that actually tells the dm what everyone is doing so that you get you know so this is the sort of uh this is kind of a different topic but it's the sort of gateway to metagaming because you have a caller that's designated anything you say doesn't actually mean you're doing that you're just talking and you can metagame all you want because also in part this game relied on players playing smartly not just what their pc would know but what they themselves know and so they could metagame, 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 have a discussion, talk about tactics, talk about strategy, do all that stuff. And the DM would only give an adjudication or a ruling if the caller turned to the DM and said, okay, here's what 
this person's doing, here's what I'm doing, here's what this other character's doing, here's what. Now, in actuality, lots of parties threw that caller idea out the window after trying it a couple of times. Some people still used it, and so I'm going to get hate mail on both sides, right? Um, but that's sort of how that goes, that some tables use those. And in my experience, most tables did not because people wanted to feel like they were their own, they were determining their own action. So it's interesting that you bring up that they think it's the, you know, the, the, the comments are that it was the end. Cause here's the next thing that happened later that same year, the Blackmore supplement came out. So supplement four or five, right? And the Blackmore supplement had the assassin subclass in it. So it was a subclass of thieves. So it got all the thief skills and it also got the skill of disguise and the skill of using poisons in that same book there was a monk class that was introduced. Monks were sort of this cleric-thief hybrid, so they also could perform thief skills, along with some other abilities like speak with animals and plants. Um, and then that that also um, that that had some consequences. And then the next year, Eldritch Wizardry came out, which introduced psionics. And you might think that's not related, but some of the psionic powers at low levels are more like abilities and they're treated more like skills, but ultimately they, they, get a, they have spell-like effects in a way. So there was sort of a mesh there. So all of these things sort of culminated in, in just a few years, you know, 1974 to 1976, all of this was happening. And the game really relied upon the DM being fair in their adjudication of whatever the players said they were doing. And so if there was no thief class, if so if this if you did not have the Greyhawk supplement, you didn't have the Blackmore supplement, you you all you had was the initial fighting man and magic user and and then like dwarves and elves that you had in the initial supplement, you know, in the, in the initial box set, then all you had was that. And the DM basically told you everything there there was no skill unless the dm you know homebrewed that there was no skill attached to anything that you did it was about player skill and less about pc skill yep 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 and so you didn't need you didn't need a skill system right and i can definitely understand how uh, giving the thief a uh, percentage chance to move silently is an explicit statement that another character can't do that. Right. Or at least there's no resolution mechanic. So it sounds to many reasonable listeners as if you are saying, no, you can't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Yeah. The, the only one who has the ability to do, that's why I brought up the thing about not calling it skills, but instead calling it abilities, because basically what this says is the only one in the party who has the ability to pick locks is the thief. The only one in the party who has the ability to move stealthily is the thief. The only one in the party who has the ability to hide in shadows is the thief. The only one who has the ability to climb a sheer surface is the thief. So the other types of party members regardless of who the player is, those other types of characters do not have those abilities. So it's actually an important fact that it's not called a skill. It's called an ability because it's an ability related to the class. And so if you, so you're right. The implication is if you don't have that ability as part of your class setup, then you don't have uh, that ability. Literally, you cannot even attempt it because you don't have that ability. 
let's see. I'm checking back through the uh, the original ranger to see if they mm. had anything that mm-hmm. could be mistaken for a skill. But <laughs> mistaken for yeah. Well, so shortly after that, uh, Holmes' basic D&D in 1977, it's really no different from the, the boxes because, of course, as we talked about before, Holmes' basic really was meant to uh, give you three levels and then parlay you directly into a D&D first edition. So when you got to the end of that sort of box set, you were meant to go by first edition and play that. And in first edition, you didn't have a skill system, not in the player's handbook anyway. Uh, and you had Beckme D&D, the basic expert companion. That's the Mincer red box uh, starting set. And then you also had Moldvay Cook. Uh, Moldvay Cook in 79 and 80, maybe 81. Uh, Mincer, I think first year was 83. So those, uh, that span of products, all of those things happened in the late 70s and early to mid 80s. And none of them really had true skill sets in them. That They didn't have a true skill system at all. And most things were related to either race or class and were called abilities. It wasn't until 89, when second edition came out, that you ended up with something like proficiencies. And uh, 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 consequently, uh, 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 well, wait, wait, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But hold on, I just want to connect this. So consequently, uh, the rules, com- the rules uh, cyclopedia came out in 1991 that also included that sort of skill system because all throughout the Beckme run, they were sort of working in in their gazetteer line. They were working in different skills and things. So by the time the rule cyclopedia came out, by the time basically the end of the Beckney line was happening, there was actually an optional skill system. So I know we don't want to get to second edition yet, but I just wanted to give that whole setup for the basic and the original D&D stuff. And now let's come back to what, what you were looking for. Okay, so so you, you're right, of course, to point out that there's a skill system in um, in Beckme and the uh, rule cyclopedia, uh, its its core mechanic looks like um, every skill is tied to an ability score, and uh, if you have the skill, you just need to roll under your ability score with a d20 to succeed. Correct. That's right. The higher your attribute, the easier it is to succeed at that skill. Right. Um, right. And. They also had weapon mastery in the rule cyclopedia, by right, the way. Yeah. Um, so then we also have um, Oriental Adventures in 1985, which I have open in front of me, and that, interestingly enough, has um, uh, non-weapon proficiencies that would be very recognizable to a second edition player, um, and. Uh, calls them peaceful proficiencies in some cases, which is distinguishing them from weapon proficiencies, of course. Um, was that try- Was that peaceful as in non-combat, or was it trying to play on the Eastern peaceful religions like Buddhism and Zen? Uh, oh. Uh, it, it seems to be pretty strictly in the sense of non-combat, but... Um, there's, there's an interesting little rule where the the book invites the DM to give the player a bonus of um, plus one or plus two um, if they can uh, provide an example of that of that thing, uh, such as a, a poetry skill. If you give the DM a uh, 
piece of Chinese or Japanese poetry, um, that might be worth a plus one. Uh, if you can actually perform the skill, such as writing a haiku, uh, the DM can allow a bonus of plus two. This is stri strictly an optional rule. Um, I, I think that's an interesting set of choices. Uh, sort of, sort of unusual. Um, but then we get into the the rest of uh, the, the the skill system here, and uh, I mean it's it's pretty dense material uh, that I frankly haven't looked over in any detail in a long time. But uh, so that was that was nineteen eighty five. So you have it's nineteen eighty five. So you have. Um, the, the large number of individually defined skills, uh, which are separated into different uh, categories of proficiency. So you have artisan proficiencies, barbarian proficiencies, common proficiencies, court proficiencies, and uh, that that's all sort of determining who can do what. And um, then each skill requires one or more proficiency slots um, in a way that, again, is very recognizable to people who uh, played second edition, um, which is what most people think of as the first non-weapon proficiency. In 1987, 1987 is the year, I was just looking it up uh, on my copy here, it's the year that the first gazetteer, the first Beckme gazetteer came out, which was the Grand Duchy of Karamikos. Um, and it actually has, of course, a section on what they, they call them in, in Beckme, they call them general skills. And, uh, and that's, that's what ends oh. up in the rule cyclopedia. So it's the D20 role. It's attached to a, uh, attribute score. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some rules in here for improving them, uh, learning more, you know, that, that sort of thing. And then that gets carried basically through all the entire Gazetteer series. So like Gazetteer about the dwarves of Rockholm, it has a section on general skills for dwarves, you know, uh, but it's the same basic, it's the same basic setup, right? It's about uh, what attribute is this skill attached to? What does the skill let you do? And how do you succeed at that skill? And what does that mean? It, it gives some tips, you know, to the, the GM for, you know, to the DM for how to adjudicate a success or failure uh, in in very 1987 1988 terms, right? Um, and it's completely optional. None of none of these sure. were uh, prescribed as this is what you will do in your game. Now it was here's some extra options. Right. The non-weapon proficiencies in Oriental Adventures do seem to uh, be assumed mm -hmm. as something you'll you'll adopt. Um, so as far as I can tell. Your ability scores don't influence your skill roles hmm. in any way. Right. In Oriental Adventures. Uh, instead, you have a base chance of success, which is a number that is somewhere between uh, 8 and there's a 17. Uh, between, let's say, 8 and 18. There's an 18. Um, oh, 19. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you want to uh, roll over that number, and so you spend uh, proficiency slots to bring the number down. Uh, 
uh, mm-hmm. and make it more likely that you can succeed. But you can't ever uh, bring your base chances, bring your chance of success mm-hmm. number below a three. And it's not not connected to an uh, attribute, huh? That's an interesting. Huh. Uh, no, I don't believe it is. I mean, I, so this is just two, two or three years later in 1988. And when you look at the general skills, the way it's uh, set up um, in the Dwarves of Rockholm, it's, it's actually a pretty nice little package. They, they just, you know, they basically say, look, everyone, every beginning character knows four skills. Uh, here's how to use them. Here's a sample with some text of how to do it. And then if you want to improve it, you can um, you can actually increase your skill roll to a higher score than what your ability uh, was that it was based on uh, by trading in some of your choices, some of you know. So you can basically specialize and get fewer skills, but have an easier chance of succeeding at the ones that you do have. Um, and then it tells you know it says basically it says it's the DM who decides uh, when a character may try a skill roll and it's the DM who decides what sort of effect the skill has in a given situation. And it's the responsibility of the DM to see to it that the players don't abuse the skills, um, and achieve results, you know, that are totally inappropriate to the skill. That would be abuse. Uh, it's also the responsibility of the DM to reward characters who use their skills cleverly. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it sort of, it assumes, you know, that if you want to use this, you're still leaving it in, in the hands of the DM. Um, but it's but it's directly connected to attributes. There's n- there's no skill in here that's not connected to an attribute role, so it makes the attributes matter. Yep, yep. Um, that uh, certainly that model of mm-hmm. connected to attributes in some way is the one that's going to survive. I wonder if it actually grew because this was later than Oriental Adventures. So I wonder if it grew out of feedback that they received from the skill system in Oriental Adventures. You know what I mean? I I mean that makes sense to me. Um, it's it, at least with some of the skills in here, it makes sense to me that in in Oriental Adventures, that is, it makes sense to me that you wouldn't want to tie them too closely to ability scores mm-hmm. because deciding which ability score gets to be the one that plays a crafter yeah. uh, is one of the fundamental problems of designing a crafting system for tabletop right. games. Um, uh, because, well, does only the fighter get to use your crafting system because you tied it to strength? Well, that's that's not really sensible. It's only the wizard. That's not better. Hmm. Um, and so you have all these artisan skills, and the book clearly believes that you're going to be involved in a substantial number of artisan contests. Uh, it, it goes out of its way to discuss the fact that that's a major way to um, engage with the honor economy, right? Hmm. Is to uh, compete in, uh, in in contests relating to your skills, right? Um, Which is fascinating uh, in terms of setting building, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's there's plenty that's been said and plenty to say about how this book uh, exoticizes um, Asia and. Uh, you know, medieval True. Asian cultures, and the name but, itself is problematic. Uh, uh, oh yeah, but I think that 
even the model of presenting a D&D &D that where, where honor is the primary uh, aim and combat is more incidental is fascinating. Mm -hmm. It's certainly something I would be interested in seeing uh, approached in other uh, you know, D&D &D adjacent mm -hmm. games. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm under the impression that uh, there are many settings where that would be appropriate. Uh, Glorantha or uh, Tecumel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but in any case, um, that that about sums me up for Oriental Adventures. And so uh, I'm ready to leap into second edition if you are. Yeah, it's, it sounds like that's that's almost like a proto skill system. I, I really think that's the best way to summarize it, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I would go so far actually also to say that the, what's in the Gazetteers, while more developed or while seemingly more developed because it's att attached to attributes, it's also a sort of proto-skill system um, because it still leaves so much up to the DM in terms of, well, what do I actually do with that skill? There are a lot of skills, and they're all attached to a particular attribute. Yeah. Some of them are very generalized and vague, and it's up to the DM to determine whether that skill means that you that the player can do some activity that they might think is related to that skill and it would cause in game terms it would it, it, at the table it would cause that player to have to kind of sell the dm on that item oh well yeah of course i can attempt this particular action because i have this skill and that obviously would include the ability to do this thing right like if your skill is horseback riding obviously that should include how to maintain and care for a saddle how to put the bit and bridle on how to you know what i mean yeah um and basically so the groomsman you know being the, the horse groomer all of those skills should be involved in riding the horse someone might say that right yeah uh and if your dm doesn't buy it then your DM doesn't buy it, and that skill isn't going to be used in that situation. So it's still a kind of a proto, a, a proto system. That's really a lot of it is left open to interpretation in terms of how hold the phone that skill could actually be applied. Hold yeah. the damn phone. Are you telling me that when you say no to your players, they drop it? <laughs> Get uh, out. I didn't say that. Get out. <laughs> I didn't say all that. <laughs> I think but, we both but, know that if you say no to your players, you just have a fight. And that fight's going to keep coming up. Right. But, well, but remember, the, the difference in play style uh -huh. for these earlier editions is vast. I, I'm just suggesting that people haven't changed that much. People haven't changed, but the but the thing is, uh, uh, boy, how do I say this? Uh, lots of people played for many years under very poor DMs. Oh boy, uh, poor in skill, um, not poor in money. Although that probably too, uh, because there weren't a lot of DMs around, and there certainly weren't. There wasn't an easy way to find them, so it wasn't. It it, it was very difficult if you had a DM. Uh, most people eventually would decide, okay, well, if I'm going to still play in this game, I'm going to drop this particular topic because this DM's not going to give in and they're just becoming more of a jerk and not not adjudicating this the way I want to go because they're punishing me for questioning them, which, you know, this is not an episode about good or bad DMing skills. Uh, but, 
you know, that happened a lot. Uh, it also happened a lot that there were some really awesome great DMs and so there were no problems. So, you know, I'm not trying to paint oh, anything no, I, with I this broad brush, but there was enough of an issue at enough tables that I think it's fair to say that that behavior was variable. And I think at some tables there would be a discussion and it was expected that the DM's word is final. And if you didn't let it go, then the DM is going to punish you in some way, or maybe not you, but maybe your character. I think that was, that was a, unfortunately a paradigm that was alive and well in a, at a lot of tables. So, Which will lead to a new free and frank exchange of ideas. <laughs> in, right. in my experience as a second edition GM. <laughs> but remember, remember what you and I have already concluded about second edition. We've concluded that there's a lot more player facing material and it's sort of the first edition where really the players are allowed to know some of the rules. Yep. And so that was, that was a whole new way to communicate. Um, so I think maybe it did invite some questioning and some adjudication conversations let's call them conversations <laughs> so i uh, yeah so let's jump into second edition then since we're already there <laughs> yep so um so, so here again we have uh, skills that are uh, tied to ability scores um and you have a, a different number of non-weapon proficiencies slots um that is a phrase that I am going to be stumbling over. I've stumbled over it for the last twenty something years, and so I, I don't think I'm going to solve it. Solve that speech impediment soon. I'm going to call them skill slots. Is that cool with you? Skill slots. Sure. Yeah. Um, you have a, you have a different number of skill slots uh, based on your class, uh, both starting and uh, advancement rate. Um, so let me remind the audience, in second edition, they split the classes into these four groups. There was the warrior group, and the priest group, and the... Wizard and rogue. Was it rogue? Okay, with the, the rogue group and the wizard group. And within each of those, you had sort of classes that fit within, under the, within that umbrella. So the warrior had, you know, the fighter, the cavalier, whatever, the the and the paladin maybe and then the the rogue had you know thief and ranger wait was ranger ranger was probably under warrior. I, don't know. Warrior. I don't remember but you get the idea you get the idea that there there are certain sets of i'd have to open my book it's on the bookshelf uh and so there's different classes have different they're in different categories and so that means that what skills are open to you at first are have to fall under the category yep um well well, sort of. All the skills are open to you. You just might have to pay double. Uh, and so your your starting number of skill slots is that number plus uh, your number of languages from intelligence. Because you can pick up skill slots instead of languages. Is it tied to intelligence, how many languages you can speak, you mean? Uh, right. And I, I believe that number of languages if you're using the optional non-weapon proficiency system, uh, is then your number of extra skill slots. So you have wizards who have just skill slots coming out their ears, um, and <laughs> right. uh, they have no problem paying uh, double the number of skill slots to get skills out of, say, the warrior category. And uh, while we're talking about uh, those uh, proficiency groups, uh, 
the ranger was a warrior, but uh, they bought skills at listed price rather than double price uh, from warrior and, and general. Those are the two you'd expect. And wizard. Record scratch. <laughs> what? They were casters, though, right? Not arcane casters. Yeah. Oh, that's true. They were druid casters. Mm. They used the druid spell list. Hmm. I would have accepted priest or rogue way before wizard. I don't know. Um, the bard being uh, rogue, warrior, wizard, and general, sure. No problem. I wonder if they did that because the wizard proficiency list has astrology. So watching the stars, I suppose, could fall under their herbalism. Uh, so does priest. Also priest. Oh yeah, I guess so, huh? <laughs> oh look at that, yeah. I'm yeah. I'm looking at my book right now, so <laughs> Yeah. Uh the the overlap between priest and wizard is very, very strong. Um so so I don't know, man. Uh, they wanted to be different. I don't know. Maybe that's it. They just wanted uh, it to be different. So anyway, uh as I've hinted at, there's also a general list that everyone buys at the the listed cost. Um but uh, there's a huge number of skills in this book. Um, and once you start digging into what they do, because there's a, a skill entry for each one that explains what each one does, uh, you start realizing that they're actually feats. Mm -hmm. Calling them skills is kind of right, but they're actually proto-feats, uh, especially the ones that are called non-weapon or proficiencies, but uh, they come really close to being a different kind of combat skill. Blind fighting is the most obvious, of course. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it, yes, it's a, it's a combat skill. It just happens to not be about your weapon, sort of. Um, but then charioteering is also a, a way of fighting, right? Right. Um, and um, uh, then uh, riding airborne and riding land-based are ways of fighting. They're essential to combat. Um, you know what I want to do? I, I want to compare this list with the list in uh, the rules cyclopedia. Because... That's, that's absolutely worth doing. I feel like... Uh, I mean, this one is longer. Uh, it's not wildly longer. And uh, you do have all of I don't... the rules cyclopedias... Um, parenthetical specify it's knowledge category or or, or the like there's tons and tons of expansible right ones, right language choose type knowledge choose type science choose type. this has that too it's just not as explicit about it this right. is a pretty this is a comprehensive so yeah i mean uh, i'll bet you these lists almost exactly match that's probably fair yeah because i don't see anything here that is not that's on one list and not on the other. I mean, I'm just glancing. Oh, except for blind fighting. Although you know what they have here: blind shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, in uh, rules in the rule cyclopedia, it's writing choose type, not writing land based or writing airborne. Because thanks. For right. That. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so you have all these proto feats, and they're. They're they're varied and interesting, and they're 
you know, positive statements of things you can do in a lot of cases with or without a skill role. And then this list gets, as you'd expect, hugely expanded in the splat books. Right. Um, the, the reason I wanted to look up the Beck Meat list is that when you said that, I, I thought to myself, that's probably true of Beck Me as well, that these are basically proto-feats. And I, I think that's a fair argument yeah. to, to say of the Beck Me list. Especially blind shooting, right? Yeah, at least the way it's presented in the Cyclopedia, because the Cyclopedia came out actually after the release of Second Edition. So uh, they did they did include rules in the Cyclopedia for converting your Beckme character into a Second Edition AD and D character. So I think they wanted to, to have as close a match as possible. Nice. So I, I I would say that they are probably almost exactly the same, and I do agree that they are sort of proto feats. And I've always thought that was one of the most interesting things about them, right? Um it's sort of that early recognition of well people want uh ways to add a little extra customization to their characters level over level and Lord knows you're not going to find that in most of the second edition classes. Mm -hmm. That's not like you're not making choices when you level up for classes that don't have uh, thief skills. We do need to say that first edition and second edition uh, thieves still have percentile skills. Uh, And in second edition, those percentile skills uh, are largely the same as your list from the original. but they start at some higher percentages, and later uh, later books add still more skills. Uh, so you wind up with a bribery skill and um, escape artist skill, mm. and I think a tunneling skill shows up in Dark Sun. Yeah, and uh, there's at least one that I'm I'm forgetting about, but uh, I think it's it might be uh, encryption and decryption as separate from um, read languages. Uh, I have the books on my shelf, but I can't pull them out because of where my chair yeah, is. Yeah, well, and uh, you know, trying to find specifically that thing that doesn't really matter for the purposes of a conversation. I will cede the point to you. Yeah. Um, but what I wanted to say about it is that this is the point where you really have the two systems most in tension with each other. So, yeah, you know, it's not always clear how you determine whether or not you hear a noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't have the uh, the detect noise or hear noise skill uh, from being a uh, a thief. So here's the thing: in in the earlier editions, detect noise was the only one that wasn't percentile. L- listening yep. was a d6 roll, and you had to roll a one or a two, so you had a 33 percent chance of succeeding. But by the time yep. you get to second edition, uh, listening is used uh, uses percentage, I believe, just the same as everything every other thief skill also they call them skills for the thief in second edition rather than calling them thieving abilities which is interesting in itself well and just for maximum confusion uh there's also a uh, a one-off stealth system that is not available to all thieves but is available to elves and halflings Mm. (laughs) of Uh, course they have a special racial ability that is uh, based on the role of a d6 to uh, surprising people in combat. And then you take penalties to your d6 role if you have to get through a door or a screen. 
I was thinking of the halfling's propensity to sort of hide easier than everyone else. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, is sort of also a thing. Um, so what I would say of second edition is that uh, this is really the edition where you see that the game has not made up its mind how any non-combat stuff is going to work, and uh, they don't settle on one answer. Right. They settle on all the answers. Uh, because, actually, for the sake of completeness, the non-weapon proficiency system is not the only uh, skill system that GMs have to choose from within this book. Uh, there's also a, uh, a secondary skill system, right. uh, which, from a 5th edition perspective, we'd call your background. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're, you know, it suggests that you'd uh, roll percentile dice to determine your secondary skill, but um, you're rolling for a trade skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a bunch of common ones to choose from. There's no attached resolution system for that beyond uh, the player and the DM coming to some kind of agreement over whether or not they can do the thing that's associated with their background. And as we said before, of course, you'll always agree. <laughs> oh, sure. That's how that works. That's that's how humans are. And, you know, I think that uh, maybe a more charitable reading of uh, ourselves when we were handling second edition um, mapped forward is to see a real close kinship between those secondary skills and the uh, the backgrounds found in 13th age mm-hmm. uh, where you, you know, spend a number of discretionary points on defining a background for your character and figuring out what that is going to mean and you know, having a conversation about what is or isn't included in the, the umbrella of uh, whatever background you, you define for yourself. But, you know, at least there's still a, a clear statement of what you roll and how you roll it to determine success or failure. And squinting yet a bit more, I think that you can kind of sort of see a similarity to uh, Feng Shui's rich skill system, where you know, skill in guns is not only skill in shooting guns, but also skill in maintaining guns and skill in knowing who to talk to about guns. So it is, uh, it applies to, you know, any task that relates to guns in any meaningful way, uh, rather than, you know, splitting that into a contacts skill and a um, gunsmithing skill and then a shooting skill. Right. So one of the interesting things now that's going to connect up when we get to 5th edition and we talk about how it describes tool use in Xanathar's Guide to Everything, which greatly expands what a toolkit allows you to do and what knowledge it assumes you have if you are proficient with that toolkit. Yep. So, you know, things like um, a a navigator's kit or a carpenter's kit, those kind of things kind of call back to these secondary skills. I absolutely think so. Yeah. Interesting. Um, the the one more thing I wanted to say about second edition skills is that you then have the 
skills and powers uh, revised second edition. Uh, calling it a 2.5 edition is not incorrect. Um, and I know many people do. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Uh, which largely uh, keeps the non non I told you I couldn't say it, non-weapon proficiency system of second edition, but then uh, splits all the ability scores into uh, two aspects. I mean, they're still called um, that word I can't say, <laughs> apparently. Uh, and uh, they're still named the same thing, but they're all uh, they're all point-based rather than slot-based. Mm -hmm. So costs range from uh, two points up to there's a five and you have an initial rating but then a related ability and this is in uh this skills, is and, powers. skills okay. and powers yeah and uh as far as unintuitive goes i mean that's that's pretty strong uh yeah the I'm i'm sorry i'm trying to thumb through the book and figure it out briefly because i've actually known yeah. this before and i don't remember it now and what what Lord. i remember about skill uh, about about the all, all three of those books the skills and powers and then what was it combat combat and tactics and then spell spells and something yep spells and magic and spells uh, and magic yeah and so campaigns. Uh, so those books are really proto third edition you know, combat, combat, and tactics really started to sort of stretch the second edition. So, so I agree with that. Um, I I think you can definitely pick things out that are mm -hmm. presaging uh, third edition in a meaningful way. Um, but I think that there's a lot of sort of uh, struggling against mm -hmm. the game's engine uh, going on to sure, try to sure. get there. Well, that's why I say proto. Right, I, I I don't think there are, are a lot of straight lines. I think the lines from that to what we got in third edition are squiggly and full of switchbacks and steep inclines and declines. But nonetheless, <laughs> so so right. I've looked up initial rating, and it is uh, a thing that can cost you more points if your ability score is uh, too low. It's just yeah. so messy, and like reading it quickly, I can't figure it out. So I assume that no one played it right. <laughs> You're, that's probably a safe assumption, actually. Uh, like Sam, I do this professionally. If I can't do it quickly, most people can't do it slow. Yeah. Well, and it's the sort of thing where uh, you know when when you're at the table. Right? How much fun is it when the DM pulls out a book and says, "Well, let me see. I think there's a rule about that." Uh, right. Or, "Oh, I don't. I don't remember how that one works. Let me look it up." And then you can't find it. Well, God bless Merles and Crawford for writing something basically comprehensible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, that, that is all I can stand to look at that book because the typeface is also monstrous. Uh. So so let's let's stop here. And we will we will continue in the next episode. Uh, so uh, before we leave, Brandis, tell us uh, where people can find you on the internet. Sure. So um, my personal blog is brandisstoddard.com. I also write for tribality.com. And you can find me on uh, MeWe, 
listed as Brandis Stoddard. Uh, there aren't a lot of us around, uh, us Brandises, uh, and also on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. And I am Samuel Dillon, and you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel, no spaces. And I am also on uh, my blog at rpgmusings.com. And I have a Patreon that is uh, patreon.com slash rpgmusings. You know, this is the Tome Show Network, so uh, you know if you if you have comments or concerns, you can email tomeshow at gmail dot com, and uh, or you can you know ping us on Twitter, and and we'll respond and and converse with you about whatever it is that we're saying that is completely wrong, or whatever it is that we're saying that you completely agree with, or any of those in between. But for now, we will say goodbye. We'll speak to you next time. All right, peace, everyone.